Second Samuel chapter 20. I have to admit, last week was difficult to kind of find application. This week was a little bit, at least it, it, it seemed a, a little more uh, relevant and somehow applicable to uh, most everybody in here. Um, does life ever to you feel chaotic? As if there's no order anywhere, there's no structure anywhere, there's no overarching sense of direction to provide you with purpose or with meaning or the right way to navigate through all the different things you could be doing. And you stop and every once in a while and ask yourself, where's the manual I can consult to make decisions about this facet of my life? Uh, that sense of chaos uh, descends, it's already been there several times, but it descends on David yet again in 2 Samuel chapter 20. Because what you are is like, a, you know, we feel this, this is like a, a sudden experience of the judges again in the middle of the king's period. Uh, so David's in charge. He's God's anointed. You think his, his family is going to be on the throne forever. No, no, he's not in charge either. Absalom is now in charge. And, and then no, 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 he's not in charge. Joab is in charge. And oh, no, 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 good, good. David's back in charge. And in this chapter, it's like, nope, Sheba jumps back in charge. And then, and then Joab again. And then David finally ends up on the throne again. And all of this is just chaos for the country. I can just imagine God watching them and rolling his eyes going, I, I put a very clear favored person of mine on the throne and none of y'all are really paying any attention. But it's not because God didn't give them order and structure. It's because they didn't honor it. And that's what happens in our life. It's not that God doesn't have some kind of direction for us. It's that so often we disregard it and we do our own thing. And then we wonder, how did this chaos come about? It's sort of like, I'll hear this from some of you every once, especially as you get older. Let's say you're doing some kind of a, a computer system for the company you work for, and you got comfortable with it. You know how it works. You master it, and you feel comfortable with it. And then suddenly, as is want to, to do, as they are want to do, uh, they change the computer system on you. Whole thing. Everything changes. And you've got to learn a whole new system. And I know some people that when that happens, they start considering retirement. You're, you're turning everything over, right? And then you get used to that, and six months later, they say, we've never liked this. We're going to do something. And then they're bought out, and here comes another one. And it's just like, it's like an earthquake, right? That's kind of what the, this period and this time and this chapter is about. All the time of this time period, David is God's choice to lead his people. But there arises several episodes of rebellion that cause havoc for the people. Rebellion is a refusal to submit to the legitimate authority while seeking to assert your own. It's as simple as I could come up with. A, a refusal to submit to, to the legitimate authority while seeking to assert your own. And the implication behind your rising up and instead of submitting is that you think you could do better. It sounds like a harsh definition, but it's true for the people who are rebelling. Uh, for them, it feels like it's a valid reason, like it's a just cause. They're righting a wrong. They are rectifying a deficiency. They are providing for a better situation. It looks like I'm trying to restore right, but they're doing it wrong. How many churches have split and a segment follows a preacher 
and starts a new one. And I want to say about that, you know, you might be intent on correcting a wrong, but do you not see that the way you're doing it is wrong itself? Do you not see that? The very, it's almost oxymoronic how you go about doing this. I'm sure that's how the Corinthians felt when they established their little house churches. We like this guy. We like this guy. We like this guy. And they thought they were vouching for greater spirituality. And Paul looks at all of them and says, no, it's immature childishness what you're doing. That's what this is. And that's what it feels like in this section of 2 Samuel. For Absalom, there's all sorts of reasons why people mo- uh, rebel. And for Absalom, it was the sin of David, I think, that, re- that, that motivated him. He saw the king over him as flawed. Not only had he sinned with Bathsheba, but he had also not done anything about the violent sexual assault within his own family. The resentment that built up, and besides this, I guess he could say, I'm of the family of David, so the throne should be mine anyway. Eventually, I'm just not going to wait on God. I'm going to rise up and grasp it myself. The sins and the flaws of other people can certainly make us want to break away and do it better. But one sin does not justify another. The failure of a person who is over you is not a legitimate excuse for rebellion. A husband does not have to be flawless to be the spiritual leader of his house. You must not make perfection the demanded criteria because there is no one who is flawless. And you want to discourage a guy from being a leader, then you make him feel like the smallest flaw and you have every right to smart off or step out from under his oversight. You do that and you will win. And by winning, you just lost. You just lost. Because the flaw of the leader in a, uh, in a relationship of submission does not justify stepping out from under it. Your government leaders may be flawed. That does not mean that we can rise up in defiance and overthrow them in revolt. It does not. Somehow we've kind of gotten to believe that if they aren't legislating righteousness, that somehow we have a right to talk about them and to undermine them and disrespect their authority. But God has this great thing in store for us. His, I'm going to say this, and I think it's true, God's primary means of shaping us is through making us submit to the authorities in our lives. It starts with your parents. It progresses to your school teachers. It goes on to your employers and to government officials or police officers or whatever. And, and what you see in our country is that we're constantly stepping out from under these positions of authority that God placed over us, and we somehow feel right in rebelling. We shouldn't. None of that makes a difference. It only compounds sin. And when Absalom rose up 
He decided, I'm not going to submit to my father who's the king of Israel. I'm going to be my own person. Lives were messed up. You'll see some of them in chapter 20. But for the man in 2 Samuel chapter 20, beginning verse 1, the strange named man that Ronnie mentioned, it's hard to tell what provoked his rebellion. It says in chapter 20, verse 1, there happened to be a worthless man. So the text kind of cuts through the chase and tells us this guy fundamentally is a worthless man. And... um, whose name was Sheba, uh, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. Benjamin was the tribe of the first king. They were the tribe that could celebrate, hey, we're the tribe of the king. But Saul fell out of favor, and now he's gone. He's part of the past, and the Benjamin tribe no longer had any kind of prestige. Not only that, but they were the smallest tribes. They had a little small... they had a little short man syndrome. Do you know what short man syndrome is, some of you? you know, they just felt like they were underrepresented and disrespected and they wanted to rise up. I think Sheba, Sheba had this sense that he just wanted to grasp authority. He wanted to grasp it while he had a chance. And so he blew a trumpet. That's all he had to do. The only thing this guy does that's of any significance is he blows a trumpet. It goes downhill from there. It's like, I want to proclaim myself leader, but as far as having leadership qualities, there are none here. So he has this desire for control and feeling unrepresented. He says, we have no portion in David. You see that in verse 1? He doesn't represent us. He doesn't care about our needs. And we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his own tent. This is a, a great way of saying, hey, get to your own house. We're going to take care of this ourselves. So all the men of Israel, meaning the ten tribes of the north, withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So you have Sheba coming on the scene. He decides that he wants to be represented. And he says, I'm the leader. Now, he never does lead. He's terrible. We'll see that in just a minute. But there is another thing that happens There's another person in this story who's grasping for authority, although he doesn't have any desire to be king. His name is Joab. We talked about him last time. And he has been stripped of power in that last chapter. He is a very influential guy. He is a man's man. He is a a warrior, a good leader of men in war. He's a hardened person. But Joab was stripped of his leadership his generalship because uh, David said don't harm my son and he saw to it that his son Absalom was killed and by disobeying that order David said forget it your cousin's going to take over the army this didn't set well with Joab nor with Joab's men who actually respected him more than they'd respected anybody else but I just want to notice in verse 4 the king said to Amasa Amasa is the one who took over Joab's place he's a cousin Call the men of Judah together with me within three days. David knows he has a problem with Sheba on his hands, and so he says to Amasa, his general, I want you to get a bunch of people together. Three days, meet me. Be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, the men of Judah, verse 5, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed. Three days go by, he comes back together, and he's nowhere to be found. The general is gone AWOL. It doesn't say why, but you can imagine David goes, is he like deserting to the other side? Is he wimping out? We don't know. He doesn't come back in three days. So David says to Abishai, he just picks the next guy's name who begins with A, is all he does. Abishai happens to be the brother of Joab. So Joab's family is very military people. Now Sheba, the son of 
Bickering will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants, pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities, and he escapes from us. Verse 7, and there went out after him Joab's men. So Joab comes back in the picture. He ain't letting this go very easy. He comes back in, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. So David's mighty men come back together, and they're going to go out on the hunt for Sheba, right? They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And when they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa finally shows up. He finally meets up with them and decides he's going to take over as general, right? Like he should have. But Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. He dropped his sword. Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand, customary greeting, to kiss him. Amasa wasn't paying attention, and with his left hand, Joab grabbed that sword and struck him with it in the stomach. And here we have a John McKnight gruesome death in the Bible episode for our FBI students. It doesn't just say a mortal wound was afflicted. It says, spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. This is wonderful junior high material. So he strikes him with a sword. His guts fall out, and he's there in the middle of the road, and he's writhing in pain and agony, right? Joab and Abishai, his brother, then go in pursuit. Joab basically takes over the job again because he's going to protect his power i like having this position and i'm going to keep it no matter what the king says and he pursued sheba the son of bickery and one of joab's young men took his stand by amasa this is what's weird this little scene right here as the man is writhing in his entrails just picture that for a minute this makes a great movie. As he's sitting there writhing in the, middle of the, in the middle of the road with a sword still stuck in him and his guts blurred out there and his blood is just boiling out, a guy is stationed there. Joab says, you just stay here. And when people come up to you, say, the, the army now belongs to Joab, and if you're willing to follow him, you can march on. If you're with this guy right here, your journey's over. Go back home, whatever. And then after everybody went by, he just kind of pulled him into a field and let him die. That's a wonderful story, isn't it? That's something that we should talk about at church a lot. Uh, but this is, this is what Joab does. He's just this gruesome guy. He is going to hold on to his power with every bit that he can. Now, I'm going to read an email to you, uh, to me. All right? This is fun. When I poke fun at people, I often get poked back. Last Sunday, I mentioned from 2 Samuel 19 why I believe Joab did the right thing in confronting David very gruffly. And I told you I agree with Joel, who happens to be here today, very scholarly guy, but I've got to warn you, I also said that means I disagree with his wife, who is scholarly herself. I get an email last Monday. Let me read it. Dear Melissa's husband, I'm not making this up. This is Joel's wife. I'm not convinced by your argument for Joab's behavior. I do agree David needed to be reminded of his duty, as we all need someone to shake us up at times. However, Joab was a heartless, self-serving man. 
I actually agree with that. The manner in which he presented the shakeup to David was not giving due honor to the king, the man after God's own heart. Joab was far from the honorable messenger that Nathan had proven to be. I agree. Nathan's a prophet. Joab's a warrior. He's not expected to be a Nathan. I didn't respond back to her. I just shut my mouth. As a, <laughs> as a, that's a very wise man. Young people, listen to me. I'll tell you what I did. I did nothing. Okay. As a ruthless man, Joab would not have recognized the grief which a father bears for his son. Hmm, seems like God our Father grieves over wayward sons. Joab trampled that grief. I question his motives. Let's see, Joab murdered Abner in revenge. He conspired with David in the death of Uriah. Where was his duty to his troops when he put them all at risk? Point well made. He killed Absalom against the king's explicit command. He killed Amasa for petty jealousy that we just saw. He conspired with Adonijah against the appointed king Solomon. We'll get there. Joab had no allegiance except to himself. Exactly. That's what we're saying tonight, right? We're not in disagreement except for that one part. Did David need to be aroused from his grief? Probably so, but Joab was an unsavory messenger. Totally agree. I guess sometimes God uses vessels of wrath to wake us up. That is absolutely true. But the way in which Joab woke up David was disrespectful at best and self-serving at worst. He was a man after God, of his own interest, rebuking the man after God's own heart. By the way, Joel's wife respects you and is happier at Valley View. She felt it necessary to defend her position against overwhelming odds. Boom. I think that's a mic drop, right? I respect that altogether. Totally true. I still think Joab had to do what he did. Joel, right? Yeah, you're smart too. He's, not, he's non-committal. He's not dummy. He's got to go home tonight, right? Yeah. She is right. And, and he killed everybody by the name of A. Abner, Absalom, Amasa. He just did that. I, I tell you who I think he's like. Nick Saban. Anybody know who Nick Saban is? If his team is winning, he looks like this. If his team is losing, he looks like this. He looks the same all the time. I would hate to have him as a friend. But if I wanted a coach for my football team, he'd be on number one on my list. That makes sense? That's kind of Joab. I don't think he would be a friend at parties that you would want over with, your, with your, the, the people you're wanting to associate with. But if you needed something done, and done right, and lead your army in victory, you want Joab. That's all I'm saying, right? Wake, shake you awake. Power hungry. Those who absolutely have to have their position will rise up in defiance of any authority that they perceive threatens them having it. And it seems like for these people there's a lot of death in their wake. He goes on to complete this mission, and here's how he does it. You can read it in the rest of the chapter. Sheba goes to the city of Abel. It's an old, resilient, faithful city. And uh, he, it's the only time we ever hear about it. Here he gets into the city, and he holds up there in the city. And Joab and his people come up, and they start trying to dismantle the, the try to go up over the, the, the walls. They can't do it, so they start doing these things. They're going to break down the wall because they're going to get in there to him. While there's a little bit of a break in their fight, a woman comes over and gets Joab's attention. And she says to him, why are you attacking 
a mother city in Israel. We are a peaceful city. We are a mother city of wisdom. We, we, we are the, uh, an old city that is faithful and true to everything that God wants us to be. And we've, we've even cr- passed along this. To, we've created other cities that are like us. Why do you want to harm us? And Joab says, you misunderstand. I don't want to harm you at all. But there's one guy in your city I want dead. She said, oh, okay, well, if we hand him over to you, will you leave us alone? He says, well, of course. And so he's there with a toothpick. I'm making this part up. He's there with a toothpick, picking his teeth, when suddenly this round object goes over the wall, lands with a thud, rolls and stops at his feet, and he picks it up, and it's Sheba's head. And here's another death of gruesome deaths in the Bible that needs to be in the FBI. The guy lost his mind. The guy was beside himself. Get that? Anyway, so what he does, he blows a trumpet. They leave the city alone. They go back. They go back to Jerusalem, and they're there with the city. Now, I want you to see what happens at the end of the chapter. Joab, (laughs) verse 23. Now, Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. He got what he wanted. He absolutely got what he was striving to keep. But keep reading in this little the section that we would normally ignore. Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. This is the first time we see this, in charge of forced labor. Forced labor. Probably non-Israelites they use for their own. But by the time of Solomon, this becomes more and more even Israelites, and it's one of the main reasons for the big rebellion that splits the kingdom. And the seeds are already planted back there in the days of David. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. Sheba was secretary. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. The last time we have a survey, David's sons were priests, but no longer. There's some changes that have taken place. And already we see there's going to be some things happen in the future that will lead to further rebellion because there's things that you can do that will lead to revolt. I would not suggest that there's never a time for God's people to revolt. There certainly is. If it's with a government, there's a time when the government forces us to do things that goes against God's will, forces us to do it. We have no option but to revolt. I don't see anything yet in our culture that would require this blatantly right now. But you do see seeds already being planted right now that if they continue to grow like this, it will happen in our future. But as of right now, we got to be very careful. You might have some instantaneous reactions that say, we need to rebel against this, but be very, very careful. Next slide. We need, when it comes to God shaping us, and making us deeper spiritual people a proper view of what happens when the authorities over us have flaws. We parents are over our children. We have the authority over our children. And a lot of times we are living in a culture that is children-driven. It's like we're letting our kids do whatever they want and think it's wonderful because we want to keep them happy. We have an authority over our children. You will not be perfect, but your children are still under your authority. Don't give up your authority as parents because you happen to be flawed in certain things. 
everyone is. Government is flawed. Husbands, wives are flawed. That does not give either one of them the right to rise up under the submission authority of God. Contentment, as you wait for God's time. Absalom, had he behaved himself, would have been the next in line for the throne. He just couldn't wait. He wanted to grasp at his time and his way, and he, and he messed it up. You know David, he had the anointing long before he had the actual throne because he had to wait and learn some things, including contentment in the meantime. God has some things that maybe he's using you for, maybe you have the skills for, but until you have the contentment, you don't have the right mindset for it. And can I tell you, I'd say this. If you are elder material, you can live without the elder position. And you'd be content. Restrain and control your influencing. Restrain and control your influencing. Sheba decided he's going to go get some people, and he got all the rebel rousers and the people who are all angry. If everybody, if you go around and you find all the discontented people and gather, you can easily get a following. Is that the kind of following you want? You want to hang around the discontents and the grumblers and the complainers. Be careful your influence, the authority that you have. There are so many things you don't even realize God is teaching you by saying to you, respect your parents and respect your employer and live in submission to the government and submit to your husband and love your wife and submit or obey your leaders at church all these relationships like that it makes you restrain yourself it makes you stop from doing things maybe that you would do by your own druthers that are inexperienced and it just stops you God is stopping you and he's restraining you and he's teaching you something in the meantime but if you keep up rising around that and refusing to learn it you'll never be the person God is wanting to build you into what he's trying to do and the authorities and the structures he put over us is stuff we can't even name. But when you rise up from under it, people can see it and it looks ugly and it ends up like the chaos of 2 Samuel 20. Learn how to submit to the authority that is over you. And God will rise up and raise within you the ability to become the authority in the areas he wants to make you that. Just let him do it in his time and his way. If there's any response that needs to be made this evening, I had a great response this morning, but if you have any need, any submission, whether to the lordship of Christ in the initial stages of of converting to, to God by submitting to the lordship of Christ and being immersed, or You've gotten too big for your britches in your Christian life and you need the pray prayers of this church for submission in your own heart. Whatever it is that you might need this congregation for, we stand ready to receive you as we stand and as we sing.